You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good to see you. Before we get started, I need to deal with an administrative matter. Uh, I've had people ask me uh, why I don't take my hat off when I appear on teach. You know, that's kind of the polite thing to do. Well, the reason is because I hate those spotlights. Mm. For 40 years, even back when I had two eyes, the spotlights were a problem. But now that I'm a one-eyed guy, it's really a problem, and so uh, you got to protect what you got. You I got to protect. You have to treat this thing with loving kindness because it's the only one I got left. But um, it gives me a, an excuse. Besides that, folks, you don't know this, but <clears throat> I'm going to tell you something about Bono, because Bono and I are a lot alike <laughs> in no a lot one, of ways. No it's, one, it's, no it's, it's the truth. That. Hey, Minnesota people, what are y'all doing? Good to see y'all down here. We got some former members that moved off up to there in the north, and they're, they're back here this they're morning. They're Texans. Yeah, yeah they're, well, they're they're still yeah they're still Texans. But but anyway, uh, where was I before I was rudely interrupted you're by so myself? Much, you're so much like Bono. Oh yeah, so right. much like Bono. People right. always wondered why Bono always wore those colored glasses. I might have never seen him without them, and they just thought you know he thought it was cool. But a couple of years ago, he actually told me <clears throat> why he does that because he has an eye condition that causes his eyes to be very sensitive to light. Now, he just didn't tell me. He actually kind of said that publicly. And I don't know if that's true or not, but my eye is very sensitive to light. And uh, so that gives me my excuse to not take the hat off. Plus, besides that, I've got hat hair underneath this thing. Not cat hair, but hat hair underneath it. Now, this Wednesday, uh, I leave for Colorado Springs. Colorado to spend uh, several days with Focus on the Family. Uh, the uh, Focus on the Family is participating in the production that I'm doing of the Fearless Series for Men, and uh, I was really excited that they came on board. Uh, Focus is very careful before they put their stamp of approval on anything because there are organizations and people all over the world that are trying to put Focus on the Family out of business because of their stance about Christian values, and so they are constantly in danger of being sued. And so they don't put their stamp of approval on much of anything if they haven't really done their due diligence. And they did. They checked me out from one end to the other. And they people that I knew that knew them and everything until finally they agreed to become a participant in the Fearless Series for Men that I'm filming. They looked at the Fearless Series for Women and saw what it looked like. And and so I was real honored when they agreed to participate with me in this because having Focus's stamp on anything gives it immediate credibility in the Christian community around the world. And so Jeremy Keaton, who is the Director of Counseling for Focus on the Family Worldwide, is going to actually sit for an interview on Thursday on camera for the Fearless Series for Men. And while I'm there, he's invited me to speak to Christian counselors at two times on that day. Uh, There's a group of Christian counselors from the community that come together for a breakfast once a month on Thursday morning. And so I'll have the privilege of speaking to them. And then I'll also be addressing the entire counseling staff, which is 18 counselors that Focus on the Family has that afternoon. And then somewhere in, the, in, in between there, uh, we'll be uh, filming. Michael uh, Lewis is going with me, taking all the camera equipment, the lights and everything, and going to put that together. My hope and prayer is that the Fearless Series for Men is going to be finished and be able to be released somewhere after the first of the year. That's quite, uh, you know, that's optimistic, but that's what we're working for. So if you, uh, if you pray... Uh, <laughs> Pray for us on Thursday because we'll be focused on the family all day on Thursday. And, and then if you I'm... don't pray, come and talk to us afterwards about <laughs> yeah. why. And then Friday, actually going to be filming Doug Weiss, going to be interviewing Doug Weiss uh, there in Colorado Springs as well for the series. So take your Bibles this morning and turn to Nehemiah, the fifth chapter. Uh, we're going to pick up with verse 14 and go through the end of the chapter this morning. For those of you that are just kind of catching on board, we've been doing a series verse by verse through the book of Nehemiah. Under the heading of under the influence, about influencing, how to become an influencer and how godly influencers actually behave because Nehemiah was. And if you haven't been with us, you may be, we'll catch up in the middle of the story here, but along the way we'll be able to bring you up to speed of what Nehemiah is doing and what the story of Nehemiah is all, all about. But before we get into the text this morning, I want to make a statement that's going to sound strange. And it goes like this, most people fail in success rather than failure. Mm. 
more people fail in success rather than in failure. I know that sounds like a nonsensical statement. But what I mean is that failure is often our greatest teacher. And if we allow ourselves to be taught and instructed by our failures, then that failure does not stop us. It just makes us better. But oftentimes, success can lead to a failure that can take you completely out of the game. One way of saying it is that failure often leads to success, that if you're learning from your failure, and then that success can lead you to failure. Another way of saying it is like this. Say, how many ways have you got to say it, James? As many as I have to to get the point across. (laughs) Failure often builds character. Success often erodes character. And we see illustrations of that in virtually every area of life. But one of them that we see a great deal in our day and time is in the area of Christian ministry. And I I don't know that it's happening any more than it ever has happened before. It's just that with our communication style, with social media, with 24-hour news on cable and all those kinds of things, we're much more aware of what's going on uh, with people. But many, many failures that most of you are aware of about well-known Christian leaders who, in that pinnacle of whatever success, they fail. And I've known some of those people personally that you've read about and heard about that, that did that. And, and I knew for a fact that they were individuals who had behind them many, many, many years of hard work and labor leading up to that point, many years of faithful service, and demonstrated personal values and Christian values. Yet they get to this place, and then we read about them failing, either moral failure or ethical failure or maybe even spiritual failure when they got to that point that we would call the pinnacle of success. Now, you know, getting your name in lights and all that kind of, in the Christian world, it's not the definition of success, but taking the world's definition of what people would say that's success, then when they got to that point where they're great influencers, then all of a sudden things changed and they failed. And as I read the scripture, I was reminded of the fact that the apostle Paul was very aware of that possibility in his own life. And he was aware of the danger. It was something that was on his mind and that he spoke about, and he actually even took precaution against happening. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, he says to the Christian, Corinthian church, he says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, when Paul talks about his body, he's talking about the summation of his whole being, his emotional, his spiritual, his physical. He was very, very aware that, you know, I think Paul was a pretty popular dude, don't you think? I mean, he was kind of like, you know, the three missionary journeys, the church planter. I mean, he was known all over Asia Minor, all over that world. He was a Christian celebrity of the first century, if ever there could have possibly been be one. And, and Paul was very aware that he could fail in that, in that place. And so he says, everything about me, I keep it under control. I, I have accountability. I do all of these things lest after I have preached to others that I should become disqualified. It's like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and then Paul. And then Paul. And then, Bill, and then, <laughs> like, and then Billy Graham. And then yeah. Billy Graham yeah. somewhere down here. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, 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 and so he was very aware of that. Now, what we want to do this morning in the, in the fifth chapter of Nehemiah, as we finish it out, this chapter, is take a look at Nehemiah and glean some principles from Nehemiah's life about how to avoid failure in success. Now, these principles, most of you are going, well, okay, I can check out right now because nobody looks at me. As a, well, we, we all are a success in one way or another. You may, you may look at success in your marriage and think, you know what, we have really have a successful marriage. Well, what do you do in order to keep that going on and rather than finding failure? It may be in business. It may be in, in a career. You're climbing. You get to that place. Or, or it may be some form of ministry. I don't know. But every one of us has those areas in our lives where we have moved up to, into what you could call, quote, unquote, success. And when you get there, what do you do that you don't fail in success? So these principles can serve you. How to survive your own success. 
The first thing that you need to remember when you succeed is the people who put you there. Uh, whenever we look at how to survive success and ultimately thrive in success, uh, the first question is how well you remember the people responsible for putting you in that place to begin with. Uh, one of the questions that we have to ask of Nehemiah as we're in this passage is what kind of success did Nehemiah even have? And it's a good question because up to this point, he's faced a lot of hardship and yet there is success in the midst of it when we evaluate the scope of his life. He was made governor of Judah in verse 14, but we have to remember that this book is written in retrospect. So all of these events that we're talking about, they've already taken place as Nehemiah is writing it. He's recalling, he's come to the end of his life and he's recalling now what happened in his life and, and looking back and sharing details with us about how it all unfolded. And it's interesting that when you look at the scope of Nehemiah's life, we see him operating in three distinct roles. The first one begins uh, with the role of the cupbearer. If you remember back in the beginning of chapter 1, Nehemiah was serving as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. He was living about 800 miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, if you remember at this point, uh, we covered sort of how we got here. The Jews were in Babylonian exile as the prophet Jeremiah prophesied would happen. Uh, the Jewish people had uh, committed full force uh, to just vibrant spiritual worship of idols, and, uh, and so it led them into a place of sin and ultimate rebellion, and so God exiles them at the hands of Babylon. While they are in Babylonian captivity, Persia sacks Babylon, <laughs> and so now Persia is the one holding the keys and, and kind of keeping uh, up with the Jews in captivity, and it is through another prophecy of Jeremiah, the King Cyrus who is ultimately the one that begins to let the Jewish people go back to the land in phases. And uh, if you remember, phase one was led by the man Zerubbabel uh, to go back and rebuild the temple. That's one of those words, once you get started on it, it's kind of hard. You Zerubbabel. <laughs> yeah, uh, just say it until it feels right. Uh, the phase two was led by a man named Ezra, who after the temple is rebuilt, comes to reestablish the law. And it is in phase three that Nehemiah begins. Nehemiah is serving as cupbearer to Artaxerxes, and the king gives him permission and supplies to return to Jerusalem with the temple having been rebuilt, the law having been reestablished. His job is to come and rebuild the wall. And so that is the first role we see him in, cupbearer. And then he moves into a different role, and we would call this kind of the contractor project manager role. Once he arrives in Jerusalem, he starts to make plans for how to rebuild this massive wall, and we talked through that in, in chapters 2 and 3, how uh, he went through the, the rubble and, and figured out where the gates needed to be, and he sort of serves as an overseer or a project manager for this massive construction job. Now, keep in mind, this is a promotion for him. It may not have been how he saw it, but certainly if we look at it in our perspective, that's exactly what it is. He's no longer in the pagan city. Uh, he's back in the city of God, Jerusalem. He's re rebuilding the wall now. He's not having to risk his life as a cupbearer. I mean, cupbearer, you know, the, the job has its pros and cons. He was a slave to the king, but certainly got to hang out with the king and eat the king's food and drink. The problem is, is if anyone tried to assassinate the king by poisoning him, uh, Nehemiah is the one that bites the dust. It's the taster that goes first. He's the one. Yeah, exactly. So this is an upgrade. It, there's still some trouble he faces, but there are certainly some benefits now that he's experiencing that he didn't have in that first role. And it's in this role that he faces a lot of trouble, and he handles that trouble really well in the way that he deals with people and the detractors and some of the things we've already talked about. And it's likely because of how well he handles this job that he is promoted again to now, in verse 14, the governor of Judah. Now keep in mind, this promotion was not a democratic appointment. The people didn't like band together and go, it's coming up on election day, we need to, we need to put Nehemiah in charge. There was no democracy. This came from the hand of Artaxerxes. And so likely what had happened is he was doing his job so well and handling adversity with such diligence that it reflected well on Artaxerxes, who was the one who sent him there. Word got probably back to Artaxerxes, and uh, as a show of confidence, Artaxerxes promotes him to the position of governor. Now, understand that he's climbing the ladder. Again, this may not have been his intention. His intention, I think, was just to obey God and be faithful to what he was given. But his actions 
of faithfulness move him up this ladder, and he is given power. And as St. Spider-Man says, with great power comes what? Yeah, it's actually, I guess it was his uncle, right? Uncle Ben. Yeah. I never saw Spider-Man. I was watching The Passion of the Christ. Oh, right. I understand that some of you probably did. So spiritual. So spiritual. I'm surprised you watch it all, you know? I mean, just because we're with the eye. Well, I listen more than I watch. It was an audio book. So this is where... This is where problems really arise, if we're being honest, right? With great power, you're given privilege. Powerful people have privilege. There are things that are given to them uh, that come with a responsibility. And it's in that privilege and in that power where trouble usually uh, crops up. Because it is power that ultimately corrupts um, if we allow it to. And, And these privileges begin to inflate the ego. And all kinds of bad things begin to happen. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah is somehow able to survive and even thrive in this success. And so there are some really helpful things that we need to learn from him. We see it demonstrated in his life. So for one, uh, verses 14 and 15a say that he refused the governor's food allowance. Look at these verses. It says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, for those of you who can't do math, Nehemiah is nice enough to do it for you. Um, <laughs> neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people. Now, first of all, 12 years is a long time. You know, I think it's easy to read the Bible, and especially narrative works like this, that's just sort of telling a story to think that like all of this just happened within a few weeks. You know, we're in chapter four, five, six, whatever, and it's like you don't feel like that much time has gone by. But 12 years as a governor, like just like that, boom, it's done, right? Um, During that time, he had a particular privilege of the governor called the food allowance. And what that allowed him to do was have access and money to purchase the best possible foods and at a great amount, a great surplus of it. And and an important thing to note here is that that money, that allowance, did not come out of the pocket of Artaxerxes. It came out of the pocket of you people, the commoners, the the peasant people. You calling us commoners? No. Yeah, I am. The Uh, peasants? That's quite insulting. (laughs) (laughs) And, And you have to remember that if you remember back last week, this was during a time of economic struggle. People already, there was famine in the land. They were having to pay high taxes to the king already. Things were not well in Denmark, as Shakespeare said. I made that joke last week. i got to stop that. You so, it didn't work last week either. So, no. Robbie appreciated it. So Nehemiah, 12 years later, never once takes this privilege and utilizes it. He says that during that time, neither I nor my brothers took the food allowance that was given to them, even though he had the power to. Even though the privilege was there for him, he never used the allowance once. He refused to let his success corrupt him. Verse 15, uh, the second half of it, uh, it says that on top of the food, the former governors who were before me took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. And so it wasn't uncommon for governors then to extort more money out of the people's pockets. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. And again, the question becomes, why? Why is it that he operates differently than how other people in power usually operate? And the answer is, at least as a a starting place, because he remembered how he got to where he was in the first place. And this is such an important concept. It's usually where things go wrong for us. Whenever you find yourself in a position of success, do not forget who allowed you to get there. Now, the text explicitly speaks of one aspect of this. But I really think there's another aspect that's implied in the book of Nehemiah, and and I want to talk about both of them here for a moment. One has to do with respect, and the other has to do with reverence. And they're both super important to grounding you in the success that you have and allowing you to operate with faithfulness in the midst of it. Whenever you have success, number one, respect the earthly representative who put you there. So for Nehemiah, This earthly representative was Artaxerxes. Now, he doesn't thank the king explicitly here in the text, but he did, I believe, understand that God uses people to Mm -hmm. accomplish his purposes in the world, normally. 
That is the normal mode by which God operates in the world through people. It's very rare that he comes down in a burning bush or in this like supernatural, you know, theophany. Normally, it is through prophets and priests and kings and apostles and disciples and so on and so forth. Now the church. And so he understands that God uses people, and specifically the king Artaxerxes in his instance, to bring him to this place of success. And he has a good amount of respect for him. You see it in his interactions in chapters 1 and 2 when he is talking with the king. He speaks respectfully. He has a lot of humility in the way that he talks to the king, in the way he conducts himself. He does his job well. He's given a lot of responsibility, and he reflects well on the king as a, as a means of being respectful to him. And so if you have success, the first thing you need to remember is that God usually uses people to accomplish success. And so we meet, we're mindful of that person that God has used to get me where I am, and I respect that earthly representative. But there's a second component here. We respect the earthly representative, but we revere the heavenly reality. The end of verse 15, Nehemiah says, but I did not do what the former governors did because of the fear of God. Because of the fear of God. We've talked a lot lately about that phrase, the fear of God, and what it means and what it doesn't mean. It does not mean uh, cowardice or timidity. It doesn't mean that I'm scared in a cowardly way of God. The Hebrew word here is a word that means piety or reverence. It's a word that, in other words, conveys the idea that Nehemiah was reverent towards God. He had piety towards him, and that reverence prevented him from being corrupted by his power and privilege to take the food allowance and the uh, extorted money from the people. So he understood, in other words, that he may have been appointed by the king of Persia, but that it was ultimately the king of kings who was behind it all. And so he had respect for the king, but he revered God who was ultimately the one behind the scenes making it happen. And that is in part what keeps him in line. Now, I want to just be honest with you, as I thought about this this week, this really resonates with me a lot. Uh, I am a nobody. I come, you know, from a, a place of no religious training and background at all when I first came to this church. The only thing that landed me here was that I wanted to marry Jessica, and her one condition was we had to go to a church once a week, and I thought, you know, marry the woman of my dreams, and the trade-off is about an hour in church once a week. An hour! <laughs> he thought it was going to be an hour. An hour was the deal. <laughs> she was worth more than an hour, though, wasn't she? <sighs> she was worth way more than You know, how many guys have gone down that road? They found a great wife and found Jesus in the process. Yep. You know, that's happened to a few of them. But, but, you know, when I look at the scope of my life, it's amazing to me that I even came to the Lord, much less came on to the church staff in any sort of capacity, much less was able through the years for doors to be opened to me to eventually be where I am today. And I, I wake up every day dumbfounded by it. I remember how I got here. And I, I allow as, as well as I can for this to shape the way that I lead here today. I respect the earthly representative that God used to put me here, and I, I, I believe that. James and Laura and Alan and a few other people in this church that were instrumental in pouring into me and sharpening me and, and, and molding me into who I am. But ultimately, my reverence is for God who works through people who brought me here. Amen. And if you will allow those realities to shape you, and you will remember those every day. You will lead in the way that God desires you to lead, as Nehemiah did. Hmm. You remember, first of all, how you got there. You know, the truth of the matter is, no, none of us do really much anything of worth, anything that's worthwhile in our lives that people didn't participate in the process with us. That's true. I mean, none of us get there by ourselves. No. I, I can look back, you know, people that poured into my life at various times from the time I came to Christ off the streets at the age of 18. There were people that supported me and that cared for me and, and on and on and on. And, 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 and it's always a good practice to remember that, that God is ultimately the one that we revere, but we also respect the people that he has used along the way, and we give right. them honor as well. And, and Nehemiah is doing that quite adequately. He recognizes that God's hand was on his life, but that God had worked through a lot of folks, and, and the king of Persia didn't have to let him go back, didn't have to give him all the materials, nope. but God worked in the king's heart, and so through that king, he's acting respectfully toward that king. And, and that's one good principle to keep you from failing in success. Don't ever begin to think you got there on your own. Right. You just didn't. None of us do. But the second thing from Nehemiah's life that we learned is that we should respond in our success. We should respond by staying diligent at the work. In verse 16, he makes an interesting statement, uh, one verse, but 
Two very important statements. He said, and I also applied myself to the work on the wall, and I didn't buy land. Now, two things Nehemiah says, and they're very, very important because they're filled with a lot of history. Let's look at the one he says, I didn't buy land. What that means is that he did not use his position as a representative of the king of Persia with the wealth that came with it because that was one of the way ancient kings kept their governors in the outer provinces as being faithful is they would lavish them with a great lifestyle and they didn't want to mess up with the king and lose that. So that was one of the things. So just as the governor, he was going to be a man that had great amount of resources and the natural the natural recourse would be, well, then I'm going to use that and I'm going to buy up all this land and I'm just going to continue to line my pockets, aggrandize myself personally. But Nehemiah says, I didn't do that. I didn't use that, that ability that I had to just puff myself up and line my pockets. It gives us some insight into Nehemiah's character. He was in charge of the wall project. Now he was governor, but he was not going to use his position to increase his personal lifestyle and his personal wealth. But then he also says, but I also stayed involved in the work on the wall. So what you're going to find out, and in fact, we've already seen it, and as we continue and as he comes back to the work on the wall, you're going to see that Nehemiah wasn't just giving instructions. He wasn't just telling everybody, okay, you do this, and he was off in the, the trailer somewhere. He was actually physically on the wall. He was there actually getting greased and dirt under his fingernails just like the workers were. He was out there doing the work with them, which kept him in touch with who he was and where he came from. Now, let me say something. You may be educated, sophisticated, and elevated, but it's always dangerous to forget where you began. When leaders forget what got them there and stop doing the very things that got them there is the time when leaders often fail. Several years ago, I read a book about the early days of the development of the automobile. You go, what are you doing reading a book? Because I like to know stuff, okay? <laughs> and I love to read. I probably read 100 books a year. I probably average a couple a week. And they're, they're just all kinds of subjects. I, Reading for me is recreation. I spend two or three hours a night before I turn the light off reading. I just love to read. So I thought, you know, that's kind of cool. Uh, we kind of take for granted what we've got now in these modern automobiles. I wonder how it all, I mean, I knew about Henry Ford and the assembly line and all that kind of, but I'd never really read about all the intricacies. But what was interesting about it is in the book, there was a true story told, and it's been verified. It's not one of those mythological stories. It's actually a true story about a couple, a young couple, who were driving down a road. And it was obviously a very rough road. They didn't have interstates. And there wasn't a whole lot of traffic. It wasn't like Interstate 30 because not that many people had automobiles at the time. But they were driving down this road in their Model T Ford. And somewhere along the way, as it often happened in the early days, it's beginning to happen more and more with computer technology today, they developed some engine trouble and their car quit quit running. So they were stranded and pulled off the side of the road and they were stranded. Like I said, there was not a lot of traffic, so they were out in the middle of nowhere by themselves. But eventually another vehicle came along and pulled up behind them and a very well-dressed man got out of the, the, his, his car and asked them what the problem was. And they said, well, we don't really know. We don't know anything about this piece of equipment, but it just stopped running. The engine just stopped running. And the story goes that the man rolled up his sleeves, opened the hood, and he got under the hood and began to tinker around for a few minutes. And after he had finished, he said, now try to start it now. And it started. And they were so excited because, you know, here they were. They'd been stranded, and this man has, has, you know. So in the process of thanking him, they realized they didn't even know who he was. They'd never even been polite enough to ask the man's name. And so he said, sir, thank you so much for what, Who are you? What is your name? And he said, my name is Henry Ford. Oh. And that's not mythological. That's true. It's, it's been verified through history. That something interesting about that guy, that even though he was... By this time, a man of incredible wealth, incredible success, that he never, he just never got to the point where he thought he was too good to roll up his sleeves, get under the hood of one of those cars, and get grease under his fingernails. That's a, that's a, that's a testament to the character of that particular individual. It is. And I don't know a whole lot about him before. I don't know how he lived his life as far as you know, morality or whatever, but I, just do, I do know that that was part of his success, that he kept his hand to the plow. Sam Walton is another story like that, the, the, um, the developer of, of Walmart. Now, how, you might, some of you 
may not care for Walmart, but it's what an incredible, what an incredible uh, accomplishment that guy in Bentonville, Arkansas, opened the first store. He never moved out of the original house, even when he was the richest man in the world. He never moved out of the original house that he lived in in Bentonville, Arkansas. But he was famous for showing up in the local stores all over the country. He never stopped doing that, even when he became the wealthiest man in the world. He'd visit the local stores. He would greet the employees by name, the cashiers, the stock boys. And they say that some of the original stock boys of Walmart became multimillionaires because they started, you know, on the ground floor with him. But, again, what it said of Sam Walton was that he never lost touch with who he was and where he started, and he was never too good to get out there among the hoi polloi, which is the, the Greek terminology, the common people, mm-hmm. you know. He, he never did that, and it was a part of the key, I think, to his success. Now, I want you to take those two characters and compare and contrast them, juxtapose, if you will, if you want to use a college word, against two characters in Scripture, Okay. One of those characters who failed to do that and the other one who didn't. So let's compress him. In the intro, I read the passage in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, where the apostle Paul said, I discipline my body and keep it under control so that after preaching to others, I myself should not be disqualified. In other words, he, very, he was very cognizant of the fact that in his success, if he started believing his own press releases, he could... He could become disqualified after preaching to others. So here's the background of that, though, and the background of his life. Before he came to know Christ on the Damascus Road and was named Paul, his name was Saul. And as a Jewish boy growing up with the name of Saul, he was a member of the upper crust of Jewish society. He was born into an upper crust family. He was schooled by Gamaliel, which was the, the top teacher in Judaism. He was, he was even born into the upper crust of Jewish society, and then he followed that up with his life. And he gives us a picture of his pedigree as a Jew, and this is all before he came to Christ, in Philippians 3, verse 5 through 7, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was exactly how the scripture, the, the Torah said it was to be done. Of the people of Israel, in other words, I wasn't a foreigner that came in and became a Jew. I was born a Jew. Of the tribe of Benjamin, which is, you know, high muckety-muck, is up there. A Hebrew of Hebrews. And then he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. And what does that mean? That means that he was a part of that upper crust of the religious community that dotted every spiritual I and crossed every spiritual T and they were the high muckety-muck. And he says, on top of that, what did I do? I was a persecutor of the church because the Pharisees thought that this Christ was a pretender, that he wasn't the Messiah, and that the church of Jesus was a cult, and it was their job to wipe them off the face of the earth, and that's what he was doing. And then he says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. In other words, he said, I did it all. I checked all the boxes. What does that say? It reveals that he was at the pinnacle of success in Jewish society. He lived the elite of the Jews at the top levels as a Jewish leader. And in that success, he did what others did. He removed himself self from daily Jewish interaction with the typical common Jew that was not as uh, meticulous, if you will, about keeping the law. And so they were considered to be somewhat sinful and, and dirty, and a Pharisee wouldn't even have contact with them and wouldn't even associate with the common people. But he goes on in that verse where he gives his pedigree. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Mm. Now he's speaking back as a Christian looking back on that pedigree that he had. And he says, all of that stuff now, as a Christ follower, after meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road, I counted all as loss. It meant nothing. It's rubbish. Why? Because all that stuff had caused him to miss God's purpose. He missed the Jewish Messiah. He became a murderer of Christians. He was the one there holding the robe of those that stoned the faithful servant of Jesus named Stephen. And so in his success, he failed. He was a total abject failure. And in his Christian life now, 
He determined he would never allow that to happen to him again. So he constantly went back and told that story of when on the Damascus road, the risen Christ appeared to him and blinded him and brought him to his knees. He constantly went back and told that story as he wrote to the churches because he never wanted to forget who he was and where he started as he had done in his pre-Christian Jewish life. And then what he did in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, he set up all these boundaries so that that could never possibly happen again. Again, folks, the first century Christian celebrities, he was the first Christian celebrity, folks. He really was. He was the guy that three missionary journeys planting churches all over Asia Meyer, the church in Galatia, the church in Corinth, the church in Philippi, Colossae, on and on and on. You've heard of them all. Paul was the church planter. If there was ever a Christian celebrity in the first century, it would have been him. And he said, no, no. I completely keep all of that under control. Lest, after having preached to others, I should become disqualified. I do want to point out as a side note that the terminology upper crust is a fairly lower crust way of speaking. (laughs) It really is. It's only if you're from the lower crust yeah. that you refer to the upper crust as the upper crust. Absolutely. That is a wonderful point. I'm, I'm observant, if anything. And I am of the lower crust. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. I Good still God. have West Texas sand boogers up my nose. Praise the Lord. Okay. Somewhere. Now, let's look at that with David, okay? And let me just do this as quickly as I can. Let's juxtapose Paul with David. Somewhere along the way... King David forgot who he was and where he came from, and he failed at the pinnacle of success. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, is one of the most ominous verses in the Bible, if you put it in its context. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Now, Joab was the commanding general of the armies of Israel under David as the king. So he sent And when they went out to battle, he sent Joab and all of his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and the besieged Rabbah. These were all people that wanted to destroy Israel and wanted to destroy Jerusalem. But it says, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, that's an ominous statement because at this time, David was at the pinnacle of the success of his life as the king and success as a king, but you got to know something, that God called David to be a warrior king. God said, you will lead as king the armies of Israel into battle. In fact, that's why God did not allow David to build the temple, because he was a man of blood. Mm. He allowed Solomon, David's son, to build the temple in Jerusalem. God said, you're not going to build a temple because you are a man of blood. But it was by God's purpose that as a king, he would be a warrior king and he would lead the armies of Israel into war against the enemies that that wanted to destroy Israel. But this time, he stayed in Jerusalem. He didn't lead the armies. And let me tell you something. That decision, as often one decision does... We can look back on and see the cascade of events. That one decision to not be where God told him to be, to stay in Jerusalem, led to his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, which then led to the murder of her husband in the field of battle in order to cover up his adultery and sin. One decision. And David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, we aren't told why David made that decision to stay behind, but we don't really have to guess at it a whole lot, right? I mean, we know human nature. (laughs) We've seen what success does to all of us if we're not very careful. So we don't really have to guess that David came to that place evidently in his life and he just said, you know what, I don't need to do that anymore. I got Joab, I got all these generals, I got all these people. I don't need to risk my life. I don't need to lead them into battle anymore. I'll just stay here and enjoy being king. And I'll send them off to do the work. But that wasn't God's purpose for him. God's purpose was, David, you always be in the front of the armies of Israel. You are a warrior king. And that failure led to another failure and that failure to another failure. But now, come back to Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah went from being a slave in a pagan world to a pagan king in Persia to now the governor of Judea, and he stayed on the wall. Do you get this? Do you get the point? He stayed on the wall. Nehemiah never came to the point, even as governor, where he was too good to get out on the wall and do the work with the rest of the workers. Paul looked back at all that success that he'd had and how it had led him to such egregious failure and said, that will never happen to me again. I will control. I will keep my body. I will keep all of my emotions. I will keep everything, my heart and my spirit. I will keep it under my control and under the control of the Lord Jesus that that never happens again. David failed egregiously at the pinnacle of his success. Now, I guess at this point, there's three questions I want to ask, and I'm going to turn it over to Derek to bring us into the airport. What failure have you not learned from? See, the failures that we don't learn from, we repeat. Failure is not failure as long as you learn from it. So what failures have you not learned from? If you don't learn from them, you will keep repeating them. We all fail, but we don't all learn from those failures. Second question. What success are you in danger from? What area of your life have you achieved in? And, and I, it doesn't mean you don't need to be the CEO of a company. You don't be the owner of a company. You don't need to be a bigwig. It could be in your marriage. And you think, you know what? My wife and I, we have a successful marriage. What? Well, you're setting yourself up for failure if you stop doing the things that got you there. And oftentimes, we do in marriage. We go, you know what? We've, we've built a pretty good marriage. And then... All of a sudden, you get lax about that, and the next thing you know, there's a failure. So what successes are you in danger of right now in your life? Have you forgotten where you came from? Do you have set up those things that will protect you? If not, you're setting yourself up for failure in your success. And the third thing, I just said it, what safeguards do you have in place to keep you from failing in success? Last but not least, once you have, have covered those first two points, we resolve to use our success ultimately to make our life even better. I'm just kidding. That's not what it is. <laughs> well, we to resolve, live your best life now, you're yeah, supposed to do that. We you? resolve to use your success to bless others. That is the ultimate chief end of utilizing success in a godly manner. In verse 17, it says that, moreover... Uh, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. So at this point in, in Nehemiah's career, he's got about 150 people on his staff working the day-to-day -day tasks in Jerusalem. In addition to that, there are emissaries coming over from other nations on diplomatic trips to talk, discuss, you know, all the different things that nations would do together to ensure peace and, and, uh, and not cause any future problems. And it says in verse 18, Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Notice the key word in verse 18 is at my expense mm -hmm. these things were prepared. In other words, Nehemiah uses the affluence that he has and the power and now the wealth because being a governor, he was paid a, paid a sizable salary from the king as well. Uh, he was obviously a good steward of what he had because he had enough to be able to bless and provide for his entire staff of 150 plus people every day in abundance. I mean, this was a feast. These were, this was a lot of really, really great food. He says an oxen a day. That's 365 oxen a year. People, that's a lot. That's a, that's, a, that's a heck of a lot of food. That's a lot of meat on the hoof. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he is utilizing all of his own resources in order to do this. He's not taking from the people. He's still not taking from the privilege of what was allowed for him as the governor. And it reminds me of, of the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12, if you're in our life Bible studies right now on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday and actually uh, Thursdays at noon now, we are in a verse-by-verse -verse study of uh, the gospel according to Luke. And, and we will get to this passage in chapter 12 probably around uh, the year 2028. So just hang with us and um, it will eventually, it's a slow study. Uh, he says, Jesus says in, in Luke 12, 48, 
Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that when you are given responsibility, you are required of more than the person who does not have those responsibilities. As a leader, as someone with success, when you are given power and privilege, there is more required of you as a result of that. It's how God's grand economy works. It's different than the world's economy. The world's economy says the more power and privilege you have, the less responsibility you need to have. Because you've made it to the top, buddy. There's nothing, there's nothing you've got to worry about now. Lavish yourself with Lavish all yourself. the blessings. But God's gospel throws the world's economy on its head. It flips it upside down. The greatest of these shall be the least, Jesus says. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The one who has been given much, much will be required of him. It's a totally different economy than the world's economy. And so Nehemiah understood this. He understood that the position he was in was not one to enrich himself and make himself better and better. It was one that allowed him to enrich and make better the lives of people around him. Hmm. And, you know, I said this for service, and, I, and I'll close with this, because I think it's, it's not in the notes, but it's just, it's very appropriate, I think, for where we are today, regardless of where you are personally, regardless of, of how you view the world, social structures, civil um, discourse, there is a lot of civil unrest in our country. There has been for probably the last 10 years at least, um, definitely the last four or five for sure. And much of that unrest comes from whether you are on the left or the right, the, 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 you're coming in touch with the reality that the people who are in power are not living with their power in the way Nehemiah unfolds it. And so it's a very real and tangible feeling of violation when the people who are supposed to uphold and protect don't do that. Yeah, I heard somebody say, I'm not interested and how much wealth a person takes to them when they go to Congress, I'm interested in how much wealth they have when they leave, leave. Yeah. Congress. And yeah. that's, that's, the, that's typically the pattern. And again, this is not a left or right issue. This is just an American issue. It's a, it's a human issue. And this is what I want to challenge you with. I want to say two things to that. One is I want, to, I want you to feel validated in your unrest. There, it is noticeable and it is real. There are people who are in charge, who have been entrusted with much, who much will be required of them one day. Uh, there will be an account for how we handle what has been given to us. And it has not been handled well in most instances. So feel validated for your frustration. But here's the second thing that I want you really to take away with this morning and think about, which is this, that Nehemiah is the exception to the rule. Nehemiah, the, the reason why we talk about Nehemiah is because he does something that most people do not do. And what that means then is that the very people that you are frustrated with, and this happens in church too, by the way. Some of you have church experiences oh, yeah. like this. Happens a lot in church. Happens a lot in nonprofits. Some of you who have that unrest because of the failures of leadership that have really brought a lot of angst to you, what I want you to wrestle with this week is that those people are not too much different than you are. And that the human condition is that when you are given power, it ultimately corrupts you. And so it's easy on this side to point fingers and be angry, and we should be very uh, in touch with the fact that, yes, it's, it's harmful, it hurts, it's, it's not a pleasant feeling. But lest we become self-righteous ourselves, we also have to recognize that I am probably not too much different than those people. And given the right opportunities to line my pockets and make my life easier and whatever else selfish ambition sin makes us prone to, I would be probably just like them. You know, Jesus gave a principle that, that gives, you a, gives us all a barometer of how we can tell. Well, how would I react if I were there? Jesus said, he who is faithful in a few things yeah. will be faithful in many. Yeah. He who is not faithful in a few things will not. will not be. So look at what God has given you. And ask yourself, are you being faithful with that? And what are you doing with that? Because if you're not, then the chances of you being much different than those very people that we like to demonize uh, is actually not a reality. We're, we're pretty much just like them. And that's a hard thing to wrestle with, but I think it's something that brings us back down to level ground and, and humility, a place of humility and a, and a place where we're able to grow. That's right. Has this been practical? 
hope it has. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning and for the life of Nehemiah, the reminder of how we handle success. Whatever level of success it is, whatever level of, of affluence you bring a person to, we realize that there are standards by which we should live. And when we, and when we don't, we, we not only violate ourselves, but we violate other people as well. And that when we do, we ultimately become a blessing to other people, which is what you desire. And so help us, God, in whatever uh, position we have been granted to live in a way where we remember how we got there, that we are re- um, resilient in the work, and that we, we resolve to be a blessing to others and, and not primarily to our own selves. We know that when we do that, the kingdom is most benefited and has the most impact on this world. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. See you next time.